Hi, I'm Eunice Oladejo, and this is Policy Talks. In this episode, I sit down with the President and CEO of the United Nations Association in Canada, Jamie Webb. We discuss the role of the United Nations in Canada's foreign policy, how the United Nations Association in Canada promotes UN values locally, as well as UN reform. Jamie Webb brings more than two decades of experience delivering innovative solutions and sustainability around the world. In senior roles with the United Nations and World Bank, among others, she has a proven track record of successfully transitioning concepts, approaches, and technologies from evidence-based options to international best practices. As an officer with the United Nations Biodiversity and Climate Change Conventions, she gained extensive experience shepherding international policy dialogues, integrating the perspectives of multiple stakeholders, including youth, indigenous peoples, and local communities. A brief reminder to our followers and listeners that all opinions discussed today are reflective of the individual person expressing them and do not reflect the views of the interviewer, IFRS Canada, the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal, or the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Now let's dive into the show. We're so excited to have you on the show, Jamie, and I'm personally really excited to have this conversation because this is an area that I'm uh, quite interested in. So to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience working for various UN agencies and how this journey has led you to the United Nations Association in Canada? Yeah, thank you, Eunice. Uh, I've been working for international policy programs, organizations, since fairly shortly after I graduated from university. Um, I did my master's degree in geography because I really wanted to understand the connection between places and and people. Uh, And that's really been reflected throughout my career, working on biodiversity, climate change, uh, nature-based solutions, and really the, the intersection between how people live within their environment and how they change as their environment changes and vice versa. Uh, I was very, very privileged to start my career working for the World Bank, which is a fantastic organization. Uh, I went from an intern to a consultant to a staff member within the period of about eight months, uh, which was a great kickstart to my career and uh, spent some very, very happy years at the World Bank before deciding that I wanted to move over to the UN system and specifically to work for a convention. What I really loved about working for UN conventions is the fact that they are consensus-based processes, which means you've got 196 countries coming together with multiple stakeholder groups and everybody needs to find a common vision. And there's just something so beautiful about that process of finding consensus and, and uniting towards a common agenda uh, and setting the way forward together. So it's been an absolute privilege for me to to have that experience over the years Um, and came back to Canada for personal reasons and very quickly found my home with the United Nations Association in Canada, where we're able to really connect Canadians uh, and people living in Canada to the United Nations system and other multilateral processes. Mm -hmm. That's really great. And 
you mentioned kind of having this consensus-based system and there's, you know, 196 or is it 193 member states that are um, part of the U.S.? Well, it depends on which convention you're part of. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Every convention has a different, uh, a different set of parties uh-huh. uh, and very few of them, unfortunately, have universal membership. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, as, as we've seen recently with the U.S., uh, it also changes. So yeah. sometimes you have countries stepping out and then hopefully stepping back in again. Uh, so, yeah, it does, it does depend on the process for sure. Yeah. So I'm sure with so many over 100 generally um you know members that are part of this as you mentioned the agenda must be very extensive so in terms of the united nations association in canada what are the kind of key goals and initiatives that you're pushing forward yeah so the UN association in canada uh, we're a civil society organization we've been around as long as the un itself actually so um, the un was established and very shortly after uh, a group of Canadians recognized that there is a, a need for a civil society counterpart to the UN. Uh, we are a member of the World Federation of UN Associations. There is, uh, well, again, it depends on the year. Unfortunately, we have chapters starting and then dropping off. Uh, but all around the world, there's about 70, I believe, at the moment, United Nations Associations around the world. Each one finds its own way of connecting with the UN and connecting with the stakeholders that we represent. And that's because we each represent a different group of stakeholders. Uh, The United Nations Association in Canada, I'd say about 90% of our work is with youth. Uh, So that's people under the age of 29. Um, But we do also run some really interesting programs working with seniors and and veterans. Uh, And veterans have become a very important element of our work this year because it's the 75th anniversary of UN peacekeeping. Um, So, you know, what we do is we have our year over year programs, which connect youth to the the UN through internships, delegate programs. Uh, We have our year over year programs that support implementation of Canada's own commitments under the UN and other multilateral processes. And then every year we commemorate the significant events that are happening within the United Nations and make sure that people in Canada are aware of what Canada has done to contribute to that particular agenda and uh, what some of the emerging issues are with that agenda. So this year it's the 75th anniversary of UN peacekeeping, as I mentioned, but this year is also the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. So those are our two big commemorations for this year. Mm -hmm. And that ties a lot with my next question. Um, Being a student in like the stream of diplomacy and foreign policy, we talk a lot about the United Nations in collaboration with Canada's foreign policy goals. Um, And we know that, you know, engagement on the UN is a really key component of Canada's foreign policy and its commitment to multilateralism. And from what you said, it seems like a main part that the UNA um, Canada plays in this is awareness. But I'm just wondering, is there anything else that um, in terms of the role that the UNA Canada plays in terms of Canada kind of promoting this goal and its efforts for multilateralism? Yeah, I mean, we, we actually kind of work on both sides of the equation. So we are the trusted partner of a lot of UN agencies when they want to uh, to engage with Canada and with Canadians. Uh, most UN offices, most UN agencies don't have offices in Canada. There's some that do, for example, UNHCR, uh, UNESCO, World Food Program, they do have offices here, but most UN agencies, because they don't operate in developed countries, don't have a physical presence in Canada. So quite often they'll call on us 
to help them with connecting with Canadians, promoting uh, their programs, their agendas, uh, supporting their outreach and engagement activities, their campaigns. Uh, and we, we love doing that because uh, we really do see such a value in the work that the UN does. And it's really important for us that, that Canadians know what the UN is doing and how the UN is actually taking Canadian values and reflecting it in their work. And a really good example of that would be Canada's Feminist International Assistance Policy, which has formed a really core component of our uh, overseas development assistance and our foreign policy for the past years. Uh, and connecting Canada's own feminist international assistance policy with the work that UN Women has been doing for years, for example, or uh, the UN's gender policy or the way that the UN has over decades been advancing the cause of women and girls and their perspectives uh, is, is a really good, clear link between what Canada has put forward as a foreign policy initiative and uh, the knowledge and capacity that the UN has to implement that and the, the shared values. So it's really important that we act as that good partner for those UN agencies to be able to, to report back essentially, report back to Canadians and say, yes, you have put forward this priority for the, 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 through this feminist international assistance priority. And this is what the UN is doing to respond. And this is what the UN has been doing to respond. And this is the strength of the UN in responding to that. So that's one side. The other side really is about uh, looking at how we reflect some of those foreign policy priorities in Canada's own actions on the Sustainable Development Goals. So as you know from Sustainable Development Goals, uh, it's not just developing countries that implement Sustainable Development Goals, it is a global set of goals. Every single country in the world is supposed to implement them and work to achieve the targets. Uh, Canada's report on the Sustainable Development Goals indicates that there are those that are losing out, that aren't being properly supported. Uh, the UN is talking about leaving no one behind. It's very clear that in Canada, people have been left behind. Uh, and for that reason, what one of the things that we've done this year is we're focusing quite a lot of our efforts on reaching those communities that Canada has acknowledged as being left behind in implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, and for us this year, that's Northern Canada. So we're, we're implementing two projects related to Sustainable Development Goals in Northern Canada um, to engage youth in implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals to strengthen community action on the Sustainable Development Goals and to ensure that as Canada moves forward, they're no longer leaving people behind. Uh, so that's really the other angle of the, the work that we undertake. That's really great to hear. And I, I like the overall essence and also your point about making Canadians aware of the UN and its work. I find that when there's like a world issue and everyone's always like, well, like, what does the UN even do? How does this, how is this uh, tangible? And so I think something like um, the United Nations Association in Canada makes it a lot more realistic when we can see it on kind of the national level rather than this huge, vague international organization. Um, so that's that's really great to hear. And you talked a bit about how um, the UNA Canada relates with the United Nations. And I guess on the other hand of the government of Canada, what does that relationship look like in terms of engagement? Yeah, I mean, we're not a lobbying organization and that's really important to note is that we don't, uh, we, we are an education-based charity. 
so we stay away from the activism space. Uh, we provide inputs to the Government of Canada when requested. Typically what that involves is uh, providing a voice for, for youth and helping the Government of Canada to, to, to be able to elevate that voice. Uh, we do work as, in partnership with the, with the Government of Canada on a number of projects and initiatives. Uh, a really good example would be uh, the upcoming Assembly for the Global Environment Facility. So the Global Environment Facility is a financial mechanism for the environment-related conventions under the UN. So they provide the financing for the UN Climate Convention, the UN Convention on Biodiversity, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, and many, many others. Uh, and Canada's hosting the assembly for the first time in Vancouver at the end of August. Uh, and we are working in partnership with Global Affairs Canada to mobilize youth as volunteers, to develop a youth delegate program and to hold a pre-assembly youth summit to provide an opportunity for youth to share their voice at the summit. Uh, and that that's a really good example of how we as UNA Canada, when we work with the government, we mobilize our network, we use our expertise, uh, we draw upon the amazing youth that we're connected with to really strengthen Canada's contributions to this international event. Uh, and you know, we did something very similar with, with COP15, the Biodiversity COP in Montreal. We ran the volunteer program for the Government of Canada for that as well, uh, and really just served as that intermediary between Government of Canada, this international process, and quote unquote everyday Canadians who want to be part of a UN process or a UN meeting. And it's really such an amazing experience to see so many people within Canada who give so freely of their time and their knowledge uh, and their passion to support Canada's own deliverables. Canada's own achievements within the UN and other multilateral processes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like as I have some friends who have participated in some delegate programs and I also as someone who has participated in some run by or other organizations, I know how impactful it is as a youth to be in spaces like that and see like the real work being done and just being really inspired. Being able to actually have those discussions and feel like your voice is being heard is definitely um, Definitely a cool thing to to be able to participate in. So turning a little bit now to, I guess, more of like foreign policy, United Nations logistics type thing. Um, in 2020, we know that Canada lost its bid for a Security Council seat and Norway and Ireland won two year temporary seats. So what impact would this seat have had for um, Canada's foreign policy. So in, in essence, why is greater engagement within the UN uh, important to Canada? Well, Canada's always been um, well respected in the United Nations as a convener. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. Uh, we don't necessarily have the economic power that some of the other members have. We don't necessarily they have the political weight that some of the other members have, but we play a really critically important role. And that's why you'll see in a lot of processes, you'll see Canadians sitting as the chairs of sessions or the, or the, the, the co-chairs of sessions, uh, because there's something about the way Canada approaches foreign policy that is very, very well suited to this kind of consensus-based bringing people together approach that is critical to the success in the United Nations. Uh, in terms of the Security Council seat, 
having a security council seat means very different things to, to different countries. And uh, I, I think that that's important to, to, to remember when we look at Canada's own perspectives on having a security council seat, uh, that that's very different from Norway's perceptions or Norway's desires or priorities and, and Ireland's as well. Uh, for Canada, there was a period where we pulled back and we began to kind of disengage from the UN and other multilateral processes. And putting forward a Security Council bid is a really strong message to say we are back. Uh, we're ready to retake that role that we had before as the convener, as the collaborator. We're no longer the antagonist. We're no longer promoting isolationism. We're no longer promoting caution when it comes to uh, multilateral approaches. We're now fully embracing them. So from my perspective, I think that that was a successful bid. You know, even though Canada did not receive its seat on the Security Council, it managed to very, very clearly and very loudly and publicly transmit that message that Canada was back, ready to re-engage, ready to be a good, strong partner. And certainly we saw that through some of the other appointments in the UN that uh, where we had seen, again, Canadians being pulled back from some of those chair and co-chair positions that they're now stepping back up again. And uh, other countries are looking upon Canada as that strong collaborative partner that they want to work with in, in the UN system. So. For, for that regard, when people say, oh, we failed in our bid as well, I mean, we, we didn't gain our seat on the Security Council, but I don't think that the process was a failure. I think that we, uh, if you if you see the end result only as achieving a, a seat in the Security Council, sure, we failed, but that wasn't really the only outcome des that was desired. Uh, and the other outcome that was desired of announcing that we're back uh, was very successfully achieved through that bid. Mm -hmm. That's a good perspective. I think a lot of the articles at the time definitely were very much on the Canada failed side of things. But I think you raised a really good point of view there where maybe it was just kind of showing that, OK, Canada is back and kind of ready to to take on uh, this leadership within the UN. So I guess more of an opinion question now, do you see a future for Canada on the Security Council? Yeah, it's a lot has happened since that bid, uh, and the, the it's the impact of what's happened since that bid, specifically with uh, Russia exerting its veto power, which, by the way, is a violation of the Security Council rules. Uh, but that has eroded some trust in the Security Council and has not just amongst the the general public, but also amongst a number of the member states that are are within the United Nations. Uh, so I think it's very difficult to talk about Canada's future in the Security Council without talking about the Security Council itself and uh, what's likely to happen with the Security Council and whether the Security Council is going to continue to operate the way it currently operates. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, the, the, when the Security Council was established. It was established with an article that if you are a party to a decision, you have to abstain. Uh, obviously, that has not been applied, and it actually hasn't been applied for a very long time. As the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine is just the most recent example, but there's maybe many times in the past where countries who are parties to a decision vetoed it or voted when they should have abstained, uh, and that really has called into question whether countries want to be a part of the Security Council. Uh, it's, a, it's a body that is not functioning effectively at the moment. 
Uh, I think Canadian public support for the Security Council is at an all-time low, so it wouldn't necessarily be beneficial for Canadian foreign policy to, to launch another bid for the Security Council. And until that is addressed, until there's both member trust and individual trust in the Security Council, um, I, I don't see Canada looking to re-engage. Uh, again, that's just my opinion, but uh, I, it, it is a very, very difficult time to talk about membership in the Security Council, uh, having a seat in the Security Council and uh, understanding what that means, not just from a process perspective, but also from a political perspective. In terms of having a seat on the Security Council, is it like a is there like a every blank amount of years someone like a country can bid or like how does that process work? Yeah, well, there's two categories of seats on the Security Council. There's the permanent seats and the, the temporary seats. Uh, so the temporary seats go through an election process uh, by the other member states and uh, the permanent seats are set. Um, the permanent seats were set following World War II and the idea was that the members of the the permanent members of the Security Council were those who were at, following World War II committed to peace, uh, and that you know the, the that is certainly not a reflection of today. So if we look at why the Security Council permanent membership was formed, it was it was seen as these are the leaders for the peace process. These are the countries that want to see a more equitable, peaceful, safe, healthy world moving forward. If we were to provide, assign those same criteria today and say which countries would be permanent members based on their current actions, their current positions, you would see a very, very different composition of those permanent members. And there's a lot of countries that are arguing that now and saying that the permanent membership from 1946 is irrelevant in, in 2023. Um, where It's very difficult to reform that though because it's in the very foundations of the UN. What you're seeing now are a lot of countries saying, okay, those temporary seats, perhaps there should be more. And that that would offer a bit of counterweight to that, uh, to the, to the permanent members. So if we had twice as many temporary seats or four times as many temporary seats, there's others that are arguing about the division and saying that instead of having regional representation, which is what we have now, where you have members from different regions, uh, we should have weighted membership so that the regions with higher populations should have more temporary seats than, than other regions with lower populations or the regions with higher need uh, should have more seats. So there, there are a lot of discussions going on, uh, but yes, I, it is a the temporary seats, the elections happen on a rotating basis because there is quite a significant investment of time and money required to bid on a seat. Uh, you don't see countries putting forward their candidacy every cycle. It tends to be something that's taken as a very, very strategic decision uh, over a long period of time. Uh, and, you know, I should also mention that it's not just about the bid. It's about that time that you're on the Security Council. There are significant expectations on Security Council members in terms of the time and effort they put into to keeping track of issues, putting forward issues. Uh, there's also a little bit of an expectation about about foreign assistance that if you're a member of the Security Council, you make a commitment to strengthen your your overseas development assistance during the period of your um, space in the Security Council to 
put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, so that when there's decisions taken by the Security Council, there is an expectation that the developed country members of the Security Council will provide a good chunk of the funding to implement those actions or those decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a perfect segue to my next question. You kind of talked about some conversations that have been had around certain reform to Security Council. And I think there's always constant conversations about possible reform to the UN, specifically with how the General Assembly works, how the Security Council works, um, and about the question of like equitable representation on increasing the membership maybe. So do you believe that there is room for reform in the Security Council and or the General Assembly? And if so, what type of reform do you think is needed? Yeah, there, there are two very different bodies. The General Assembly um, it consists of every single member state. So it, it's very different. The issues that it deals with, it, the issues that it looks at are very, very different from the Security Council. Uh, what, what I see is a parallel process of enforcing the rules and reform. Uh, now, the reform process in the UN takes a very long time because it is a intergovernmental body is a very large body uh, in order to in order to achieve reform you need a vast majority of countries to be supportive of that reform and um, to be very very clear and perhaps a little bit cynical countries don't leave their interest at the door to that general assembly chamber at all uh, the UN is a reflection of 197 countries various interests, uh, perspectives, priorities, and uh, that does make for a very complicated process when it comes to reform. Uh, there's also the reality of bad actors and uh, the way the UN is set up right now, bad actors can have a very, very strong blocking influence. They can't necessarily push through their agenda, but they can certainly block the agenda of others. Uh, and there are definitely countries who are not supportive of broad reform of the Security Council at the moment uh, and they are in a position to be able to, to block that and to prevent any further uh, reform action at the level of the Security Council. Uh, certainly you've seen that in terms of the recent relationship between the Security Council and the General Assembly where the Security Council was would be trying to push through uh, an agenda item, it would get vetoed or blocked. And then the General Assembly would do the same thing, but it was purely at the General Assembly level, it was purely a statement because the General Assembly didn't actually have any authority to enforce anything or to, to enact action because it's beyond their, their realm of responsibility, it's beyond their mandate. Uh, so you've seen this very interesting new dynamic emerge between the Security Council and General Assembly. To me, what that has just really emphasized is the fact that that the General Assembly may wish to drive reform, but without the cooperation of the Security Council itself, they're not actually going to be able to get anywhere. Uh, and uh, we also need to just bear in mind that the UN is a, a large bureaucracy. Uh, I have a lot of youth come to me saying we, you know, we really are opposed to the fact that a number of UN agencies have unpaid internships. And uh, having worked for one of the UN agencies that's within the Secretariat, 
I can tell you that we didn't want to have non-paid internships, but we were governed by the General Assembly. The General Assembly set our HR rules, and it was the General Assembly that said no unpaid internships. Uh, so I always tell people is that if you are concerned about the UN and unpaid internships, as you should be, don't go to the UN because their hands are tied. Go to your government. Go to your representative in the UN and say, what can we do to change the General Assembly's rules on internships, UN internships within the Secretariat? They only govern the Secretariat, which is a set of, it's, a, it's slightly complicated. Uh, not all UN agencies are members of the UN Secretariat, which is why you have some UN agencies that are able to, to offer paid internships, for example, uh, because they have decided that they don't want to be governed by the General Assembly in matters of HR and staffing. Uh, there's other issues with being in the Secretariat as well, but uh, that's just to, to simplify it down to, to one um, set of rules. You talked about UN agencies. so. And we've also talked about, you know, reform to the Security Council. Do you think that any aspects of the like substance of this reform should be spread to these different UN agencies? So I talked about how kind of bureaucratic they can be. Um, so do you think there's also room for that reform within uh, those agencies as well? Actually, the agencies reform much faster uh, than the General Assembly of the Security Council. So a number of UN agencies have gone through reforms recently when they've looked at everything from uh, staffing to uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion to gender to, uh, and they, they've implemented reforms at the agency level uh, and they're able to do so much easier than the General Assembly or the, the Security Council is able to. So if you look at recent reform processes within the UN, the best examples come from the agencies. Um, UNDP recently underwent a very significant reform where it looked at how it was operating in different countries, how it was managing its finances. There was a couple of irregularities uh, and they were able to identify those irregularities very early on. They were able to put in place the reforms to ensure that those irregularities didn't reoccur. So um, the, you know, the General Assembly Security Council, that's where the bureaucracy sits. Uh, but the reform process in the agencies moves much faster uh, because they don't necessarily need the approval of the General Assembly of Security Council. Uh, they just need to convince the, the member states that are supportive of, of their, those processes. And it's almost a question of biting off manageable pieces to the reform. Each, each UN agency has their own governing process uh, and they're very, very different. So it's very, that that's the challenge when you're talking about UN agencies, you can't really generalize because everybody operates differently and some offer, operate with higher levels of scrutiny than others. And there's also understandings within the different processes uh, in terms of the relationships between the countries, uh, when a country will push versus stepping back. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, to make a general statement about how one agency or program is governed compared to others. Uh, but by and large, the representatives are different. So if you look at, for example, Canada, Canada's representative to the UN Environment Program is based out of Canada's High Commission in uh, Nairobi. And they have an entire portfolio of programs related to environment developments in East Africa, of which uh, 
representing Canada in, within the governing body of the UN Environment Program is just one. That gives you a very, very different perspective than, for example, Canada's representative to, to the General Assembly, Ambassador Ray, who is an ambassador to the United Nations. That is his job. Uh, he doesn't have another portfolio. Uh, he is representing Canada's entire foreign policy perspective within the United Nations, uh, as well as Canada's domestic agenda within the United Nations as well. Uh, it, it's just that that results in different types of negotiations, different types of approaches, and just different perspectives on, on reform processes for sure. If I didn't already think the UN was <laughs> very complicated to understand, it is very, very, there's just a lot going on there. But so moving on to kind of the last portion of this interview, uh, you talked about the sustainable development goals previously. And as we know, a key UN initiative is the sustainable development goals or the SDGs. And as we continue to see greater effects of issues such as climate change, um, poverty, clean energy on our world, what do the sustainable development goals mean for us at this point in time and at the point that they were developed? Yeah, the sustainable development goals are, from my perspective, incredibly successful. Uh, I was around in the United Nations during the Millennium Development Goals, which were the precursor to the sustainable development goals. And I've seen the sustainable development goals already achieve significantly more than, than the Millennium Development Goals did. Uh, to give you an example, very soon after the SDGs were adopted, countries started developing SDG-based budgets. So you'd have a country like Kenya and Uganda would actually sit there and they'd develop their national budget around the SDGs. Uh, they'd look at how each investment, each expenditure contributed to the achievement of one of the SDGs. Uh, it also allowed for a framework for ODA in a way that was never really fully uptake by the, the Millennium Development Goals. And the countries started say, saying, okay, when we're looking at assigning ODA, when we're looking at projects and programming, for our, our development assistance, we need to map them to one or more of the sustainable development goals. Uh, and that allowed for a very, very strong focus on a common agenda. Uh, the other thing I really like about the SDGs is that the targets are, they're based on kind of a ladder. So you set your targets and you measure them compared to your ability um, and where you begin. And uh, that's allowed for differences in ambitions. So it's, it's more equal, it's, it's fairer. You go to a country like Canada and say, you have a greater capacity to achieve healthy freshwater ecosystems, we expect you to do more. Uh, now Canada is failing in that SDG for sure. Uh, we still have populations in Canada that don't have safe access to, fresh, to, to drinking water. Uh, but the uh, in the past, with the Millennium Development Goals, everybody was expected to start at the same level and achieve the same, uh, which in our world is obviously not is, is obviously not equitable. Uh, I also truly believe that the way that the private sector has embraced the Sustainable Development Goals is critical to our common future. Um, Governments do act, but they tend to act slowly and with limited influence. Private sector is a critical partner in achieving a sustainable future. 
a more equitable future and uh, seeing the extent to which the private sector has embraced the sustainable development goals has reported within their own ESG reporting within their own investor reporting on achievement of the sustainable development goals is something that we should not take lightly um, and uh, something that I think we need to encourage through both our political statements and action, but also through our individual action as as purchasers, as consumers, um, and as, as general citizens. Mm-hmm. And as we draw closer and closer to 2030, about, I guess, seven years or so away from 2030 now, for which is the goal year for the Sustainable Development Goals, what is uh, the UNA Canada doing to promote the advancement of these goals within Canada? Yeah, we uh, have a couple of really exciting projects focused on the Sustainable Development Goals. One of them is our Generation SDG program, uh, where we work with youth and provide them with training on the Sustainable Development Goals, mentorship, and provide them as a small grant to implement their own community action program related to one or more of the Sustainable Development Goals. And we've been running this program for about five years, but this year we've actually taken it to Northern Canada. Uh, Previously been operating it in the Ottawa Valley and in in Alberta. So this is the first time we really moved that program to Northern Canada. And we're really excited to be working with Northern Canadian youth on implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals in their, their own communities. Uh, We also have our Water for Youth program, which is focused specifically on sustainable development goal related to freshwater and freshwater ecosystems, uh, where we're providing freshwater test kits and training for youth, again, in northern Canada to monitor the health of freshwater ecosystems, but also to develop restoration or conservation activities or public awareness campaigns to really recognize the fact that when it comes to implementation of the sustainable development goals, uh, quite often we focus on government or large corporations, whereas we know that success really lies with youth and that it's the young people of the world who are going to come up with those creative solutions. They are going to be the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the researchers, the activists that take us to success in 2030. Uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's seven years on. So when we're working with you know 17 year old now, they'll be 24 by the time the sustainable development goals hit their target date. And just imagine everything that they can accomplish in that early part of their study, their careers, their lives to take us forward as a country. Do you th- believe that the goals for the SDGs will be reached by 2030. And also if you can give us some insight into how this kind of measurement metric works in order to measure by 2030 if we've achieved the goals. Yeah, so every goal has a set of targets and every target has a set of indicators and every indicator has a set of measurements. Uh, To be completely honest with you, there have been a lot of challenges with those measurements uh, because some of the targets are so broad and so difficult to measure. So for example, the health of freshwater ecosystems. Uh, How do you set a baseline for the health of freshwater ecosystems? What is an improvement? What's an improvement enough to say that you've reached this target? Uh, So, you know, we've had agencies like the UN Environment Program who was responsible for developing the indicators related to freshwater ecosystems, who've been working on it for five years, trying to set up something that is achievable uh, that isn't burdensome because this is the the other challenge, right? Is that you don't want to make the measurement of the target harder than the achievement of the target. 
so finding that balance between simplified measurements and um, accurate measurements has been a really, really interesting exercise. And I don't think we've got it right yet. Uh, I think that when we look back at the sustainable development goals process, one of the big learnings is going to be about that measurement process and how we find that balance, uh, how we make sure that it's not, you're not assigning 50% of the resources to figuring out if you've achieved an impact, uh, but rather looking at 90% of the resources as direct action and only 10% to, to figuring out if you've had the impact. So I, I think we'll see a lot of a lot of impact, a lot of progress that isn't captured, um, either because the measurement system isn't appropriate or because it's just so expensive to adhere to that measurement system that people have just said, no, it's, it's, it's okay, we'll just we'll, we'll do the right thing. And if we don't measure it uh, the way that the, the, the system defines that we measure it, then, then that's less of a priority than doing the right thing. Uh, we'll see, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it's that the big delay was not in implementing action. It was in deciding how to measure that action. And in terms of actually reviewing each country's progress, are you do you know if this is something that will be, I guess, like discussed within the General Assembly context where each country is kind of bringing forth some type of report or how does that work? Yeah, so every developed country is required to submit a report on their implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. And then that's reviewed and recommendations or guidances are presented back to that country. Um, Canada is a bit late on its report to the on implementation of the sustainable development goals, um, about two years overdue. Uh, but uh, that is that was built into the process was this regular reporting by developed countries. For developing countries, it's recognized as being more burdensome. Uh, and so it's voluntary for developing countries. Uh, support is provided and it tends to be more focused on the individual goals or targets rather than on the the entirety of the sustainable development goals itself. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I'm excited to see Canada's newest reports uh, on implementation of the sustainable development goals. Uh, I think we'll see some some exciting advances, but I also think we're still going to see a lot of the gaps that were identified in the last report repeated in their current report. I'll definitely be looking out for that. So in closing, what are your hopes for the United Nations generally and also for UNA Canada as organizations? What impact do you want to see these organizations make in the coming years? I, I'm such a supporter of the United Nations, having spent most of my career there. The work that the United Nations accomplishes cannot be done by anyone else. Uh, and for all the criticisms that people have, including myself, of the minutia of the United Nations or some of the individual bodies in the United Nations, the reality is that the challenges that we are facing as a global community right now are more extreme than ever before. And we need a strong and supported United Nations to take us forward. And that means both political support as well as financial support. We do need to see more resources directed towards the United Nations. Uh, the UN right now is saying that there's, it's going to, it's unable to feed 100,000 people in Haiti, Haiti this year um, because of a lack of resources. So I do think it's really important that, that the value of the UN is recognized and that people make sure that their 
MPs or MLAs know that they value the United Nations as well, and they want to see their country value the United Nations. For the United Nations Association in Canada, uh, we really do want to just expand our membership. Uh, we want to become a truly national organization that does represent the voices of Canadians, that continues to provide opportunities to people across Canada uh, who may not otherwise have those opportunities or that may not otherwise be able to engage with the United Nations and other multilateral processes. We truly do believe that Canada has a lot to offer the UN uh, and we want to make sure that the, that especially the youth that have the potential to be the next generation of leaders within the UN system uh, have that opportunity and are afforded the chance to shine uh, and to achieve their full potential on the global scale. Definitely. And I was looking at um, the UNAC website and it seems like there's a lot of really great opportunities for youth uh, to get involved within the UN. So I would definitely recommend people to go and visit that and really see the work that UNAC, UNAC is doing. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the interview. I want to thank you or extend a thank you to Jamie for being our guest on uh, this episode. And do you have any final words or sentiments that you'd like to leave us with? No, I just wanted to thank you very much for this opportunity, Eunice. It's great to, to chat with you today. And I'd also invite your listeners to follow us on social media, um, all, all of our opportunities, whether it's jobs with UNA Canada or our program opportunities are circulated through our social media channels as well. But uh, other than that, thank you so much for this opportunity. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak, not just to me, but all of the other guests on your podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you. That's it from us on this episode of Policy Talks. A special thank you to Jamie Webb and to you, the listeners.